0: This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Europe, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 14 We're Stuck with This. Oh, and it starts off strong. On the 19th of March in 2016, Belgian police shot and arrested the Belgian-born French citizen of Moroccan industry who was a ringleader of the previous November's attacks in Paris. After those attacks, Salah Abdeslam had traveled to Belgium where his fingerprints were found in at least two apartments in the heavily Muslim Molenbeek area of Brussels. He was finally arrested in another residence in Molenbeek, where he had been living with a local family. In the immediate aftermath of the arrest, Belgian riot police had to head to the area to deal with local youths who were hailing Abdeslam as their hero and hurling stones and bottles at the police in protest at his arrest. Three days later, three suicide bombers blew themselves up in the Belgian capital. They exploded their vests at the departure gates of the Brussels airport, while another at the Malbeek metro station, just by the headquarters of the European Commission. All three perpetrators were once again locals. Their victims included 32 people across a wide range of ages and nationalities. Across the continent, the traditional search for explanations began. Some blamed the attacks carried out by Belgian nationals from the Molenbeek district on town planning, others on a lack of gentrification in the area. Still others blamed Belgian foreign policy, Belgian history, including Belgian colonialism or the racism of the Belgian society. After the first round of this public debate, the New York Times carried an unremarkable article pointing the finger for the attacks at various Belgian policy failures. They interviewed one Eve Goldstein, a 38-year-old child of Jewish refugees who is now a councilman in Charbique and chief of staff for the minister president of the Brussels capital region. He insisted that it was wrong to blame the attacks on Islam, but criticized the failure of people like himself to prevent this rising radicalization among youth. He said, quote, Our cities are facing a huge problem, perhaps the largest since World War II. How is it that people who were born here in Brussels, in Paris, can call heroes the people who commit violence and terror? That is the real question we are facing, end quote. Then, in passing, Mr. Goldstein let slip the thing of interest. Friends who taught high school students in the predominantly Muslim areas of Molenbeek and Charbeek told them that when it came to their students' views of the terrorists who had bombed their city, 90% of the students, 17 and 18 years old, called them heroes. Elsewhere, in an interview with de Standard and Belgian security minister Jan Yambon, said that a significant section of the Muslim community danced when the attacks took place. As is the norm, Yamban was criticized for this by his parliamentary colleagues and the media. He replied that he had the information from several of the Belgian security services. But what he said, as with the revelation from Mr. Goldstein, is in fact a glimpse beneath the surface that is afforded the public in stories following every act of terrorism in Europe. These stories are at least as responsible as the attacks themselves for the decisive shift that is occurring in the mood of Europe. Because although the bombs, gun, and knife attacks are all of utmost concern, a secondary concern, but one that in the long run is greater, is the question of the relationship between the tiny number of extremists who carry out such attacks and the rest of the population who might get filtered in as being from the same background. A poll taken in Britain in 2006, the year after the Danish cartoons were published, showed that 78% of British Muslims believed the publishers of the cartoons ought to be prosecuted. A slightly smaller number, 68%, felt that anyone who insulted the faith ought to be prosecuted. The same poll found that almost a fifth of British Muslims, 19%, respected bin Laden, with 6% saying they highly respected him. Nine years later, when two members of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula walked into the offices of Charlie Hebdo in Paris and massacred the publication staff for printing caricatures of Muhammad, 27% of British Muslims said that they had some sympathy for the motives. Nearly a quarter said they believed violence against people who publish images of the Prophet could be justified. For the BBC, for whom this poll was carried out, they ran it with the Good News headline, quote, most British Muslims oppose Muhammad Khartoum's reprisals. The combination of the very high visibility events and an awareness that what lies beneath the terrorism constitutes an even bigger problem means that in recent years, the views of the, of the European publics have increasingly diverged from those of their leaders. After nearly every terrorist attack, the political leaders of Europe informed their publics that this had nothing to do with Islam and that Islam was in any case a peaceful religion. The publics appeared to disagree, though. In June of 2013, the polling company Comrez carried out a poll for BBC Radio 1, asking a thousand young British people about their attitudes toward the world's major religions. When the results were released three months later, they caused a small furor. Of those polled, 27% said that they did not trust those of a Muslim background, and 44% said that they thought the others did not share the same views as the rest of the population. The BBC and other media in Britain promptly set to work to try to discover what had gone wrong and how Britain could address the fact that so many people in their country thought this way. The overwhelming response to the poll was one of concern that young people should be thinking such thoughts and a debate over how to turn such perceptions around. There were more surprising things about the results, not least the fact that 15% of those polled said they did not trust Jews. 13% 13% did not trust Buddhists, and 12% said they did not trust Christians. The question of precisely why of what Buddhists had done in recent months to annoy so many young British people went completely unaddressed. But rather than run a re-education program on the nation's youth, one clue as to why young British people answered as they did may have lain with the timing of the poll. The fieldwork was carried out 7-17, or from June 7th to June 17th of 2013, it had been only a few weeks earlier that drummer Lee Rigby, a young soldier on leave from Afghanistan, had been hit by a car in broad daylight outside an army barracks in southern London, south London. Michael a- Adebulahu and Michael Abadawawe a- got out of the car, dragged their young victim into the middle of the road, oh my God, hacked his body with machetes, attempted to decapitate him, but unable to remove the head. Uh, They talked about it to the camera. I'm going to skip through a bit here. This is pretty intense stuff. Very hateful. Perhaps it is possible that rather than being bigots who make assumptions about vast swaths of people without any evidence, the young people who answered the Radio 1 poll were simply guilty of reading the news of the story I just skipped through. After all, how much higher would the polling numbers have been uh, regarding levels of distrust in another faith if two extremists or fundamentalists, had slaughtered a British soldier in broad daylight only days earlier. Much though it might be lamented, the people who were asked their opinions in that poll and who connected Islam and Muslims with violence did so because on their streets, Islam had been very recently associated with extreme violence. So that poll was a bit of an outlier. A similar story emerged shortly afterwards when a school in Dundee in Scotland asked some of his pupils to list words they thought were associated with the Muslim faith, with Islam. Among the words volunteered by the the children were terrorists, scary, and 9-11. Oh my god. The shocked teachers responded by calling up a local Muslim center and asking someone to come and correct the pupils' answers. Soon a charity was up and running that sent Muslim women around Scottish schools to correct children's views on Islam and Muslims. A report of one such occasion noted that two headscarf-wearing Muslim women explained to the children that the 9-11 hijackers had nothing to do with the faith. Unfortunately, for those involved in re-educating the public, such efforts have been dwarfed by the growing public awareness of a problem. Although the entire European political establishment and media have failed to persuade the public that the problem has been exaggerated, this is partly because the internet has diversified the sources of information but mainly because of the simple passage of events. When you consider what Europe's political leaders say and do with what their public now think, the divide is startling. A poll carried out in the Netherlands in 2016, sorry, in 2013 revealed that 77% of respondents said that Islam does not enrich their country. Some 73% said that a relationship exists between Islam and terrorist attacks, and 68% responded with what they thought with that, they thought there was enough Islam in the Netherlands as it is. The view was not confined to voters for any one particular party, but really was shared by a majority of voters from across all Dutch political parties. The same views have emerged across the continent. In France, in the same year, that is, two years before the Paris terror attacks in 2015, 73% of people polled said that they viewed Islam negatively, and 74% said that they thought the faith was intolerant. It is worth remembering that around 10% of the French population are in fact Muslim. In these same polls, 55% of Dutch voters said they didn't want any more Muslims in their country. 56% of Germans said they associated the faith with a striving for political influence. And 67% of French people said they believed Islamic values to be incompatible with the values of French society. By 2015, one poll showed that only 30% of the general public in Britain agreed that the values of Islam are compatible with the values of British society. Another poll carried out around the same time found that only a fifth, 22%, of the British public agreed with the statement that Islamic values and British values were generally compatible. It is the same everywhere. A poll carried out in Germany in 2012 showed that 64% of respondents associated Islam with violence, while 70% associated it with fanaticism and radicalism. Only 7% of Germans associated the religion with openness, tolerance, or respect for human rights. As the American scholar of contemporary Islam, Daniel Pipes has noted, opinion polls on these issues show a constant upward trajectory. Polling of the European public never reveals their concerns, about these subjects is diminishing. It is a one-way street. So in 2010, not yet a half, 47% of Germans said that they agreed with the statement that Islam does not belong in Germany. By 2016, the number of Germans who agreed with the statement had risen to 60%. All of this has gone on despite the entire Western European government governing class telling the people that they are wrong. In fact, to date, The most common response to Western Europe's governing leaders has been that people who think in such a way have clearly not experienced enough diversity, in particular, that they haven't experienced enough Islam, and that if they did, they would probably think differently. The polls, in fact, show the opposite. The more Islam there is in a society, the more the Westerners dislike and distrust there is in the society towards the faith but the response of the political classes has had something else in common, which has been their insistence that in order to deal with this problem, they must deal with this expression of public opinion. Their priority has not been down, not been to clamp down on the thing to which the public are objecting to, but rather to clamp down on the objecting public. If anyone wanted a textbook case on how politics goes wrong, here is one. In 2009, the Royal Anglican Anglian Regiment, on their return from Afghanistan, was given a homecoming parade through the town of Luton. This is one of the towns in England in which white British are in a minority, and the town has an especially large Muslim community. Many locals turned out for the parade and were angered by the sight of extremists from the Islamist group al-Mahidron, heckling and protesting the soldiers as they marched through the town center. Among other things, the group called the soldiers murderers and baby killers, Enraged members of the public attempted to confront the protesters, but the British police protected the protesters and threatened the enraged locals with arrest. In the weeks that followed, some of these locals tried to organize a protest opposing the Islamists, but they were prevented from getting to the same town hall to which the Islamist group had previously walked. While they had handed out their flyers in protest in mosques with impunity, The locals opposed to the Islamists were prevented by police from handing out any leaflets of their own. Appalled at the double standards perceived, in the weeks that followed, a group formed, which had been known as the English Defense League, the EDL. That doesn't sound good, but... In the years that followed, they organized protests in numerous cities across the UK that often descended into violence. Okay, it's their version. This was by the admission of the main organizer, partly because of the people that such protests attracted, and also because everywhere they went, organized groups of anti-fascists, often comprising large numbers of Muslims, turned up and began violent confrontations. These anti-fascist groups all had the support of leading politicians, including the prime minister. They had also previously held anti-fascist rallies where one of the killers of Lee Rigby had addressed the crowd on the anti-fascist side. But the most important thing about the EDL was not so much its activities as the attitude of the authorities toward them. At no stage did the local police or local government, the national police or government, consider that the EDL might have a point as well. In addition to allying themselves with groups that opposed the EDL even when those groups were themselves involved in extremism and violence, the upper echelons of government had clearly issued an order to shut the EDL down and prosecute its leadership. On one occasion, the EDL's leader was arrested for trying to walk, with one companion, through the heavily Muslim area of town hamlets in London. On another occasion, he was arrested after an organized protest overran its running time by three minutes. And from the outset, the authorities did everything they could to make life difficult, if not impossible, for the leadership of the group. From the moment Robinson started the organization, his bank accounts were frozen. He and all of his immediate family had their homes raided by police and files and computers taken away. Eventually, A mortgage irregularity was found, and Robinson was tried, convicted, and sent to prison for this offense. At the same time, there were constant threats from Islamist groups. As well as repeated assaults by Muslim gangs on the EDL's leaders, there were also serious efforts to kill them. In June of 2012, the police stopped a car containing part of a cell of six Islamists. The vehicle contained bombs, sawed off shotguns, knives, and a message attacking the queen, The men were heading back from an EDL demonstration where they had planned to carry out the attack, but due to small attendance that day, the protest had finished early. As on other occasions, there was little public sympathy due to a general feeling that the EDL had brought any such attacks upon themselves. In response to the problematic light in which their town was shown by the emergence of the Muslim gangs as well as the EDL, the local council put on an event called Love Luton. This was a celebration of the diversity and multiculturalism in Luton that included a range of foods and stilt walkers. In different versions, the same story has been replayed across Europe. In Germany in 2014, a movement, calling itself Pagita, formed in Dresden. Their agenda was similar to that of the EDL and other popular protest movements across Europe. They expressed themselves opposed to radical Muslims and mass immigration, though stressed their openness to immigration in general, especially in the case of Pegida to legitimate asylum seekers. As with the EDL, their numbers included prominent members of ethnic and sexual minorities, though these were rarely if ever mentioned in the press. Pagida's protests centered on an objection to indiscriminate Muslim immigration and an objection to hate preachers, Salafists, and other extremists. As with the EDL, the group's founding symbols were not only anti-Islamist, but anti-Nazi, attempting to distance themselves at the outset from any connection to such horrors of the past. Although such connections were consistently made by the media, by December 2014, the number of attendees at Pegida protests grew to more than 10,000 and had begun to spread across Germany. Unlike the EDL, which had attracted an almost exclusively working-class contingent in Britain, Pagita seemed able to appeal to a wider range of citizens in Germany, including middle-class professionals. Eventually, though in much smaller numbers, the movement spread to other parts of Europe. The reactions of the German authorities was the same as their British counterparts. Despite, or perhaps because of, opinion polls showed that as many as one in eight Germans would join a Pagita march if it occurred in their town. At its height, around 17,000 protesters came out on the Monday before Christmas to join Pegida in Dresden. Extraordinarily for a movement that had attracted such a comparatively small portion of the German public to its protests, the Chancellor used her New Year's message to respond to Pegida. The year 2014 had been an extraordinary one for Germany, though not as extraordinary as the year Merkel was about to usher in. Yet, the official figures for asylum seekers in 2014 were already at 200,000, and around four times the number they had been just two years earlier, already representing a two-decade high. The chancellor used her New Year's message not to waylay those fears, but to criticize those who felt the fears. Quote, It goes without saying that we help them and take in people who seek refuge with us. End quote. She warned the German public about Pegida, According to Merkel, movements such as Pegida discriminated against people because of the color of their skin or their religion. Quote, Do not follow people who organize these, she warned the German people, for their hearts are cold and full of prejudice and even hate. End quote. The following Monday, Pegida held a protest in Cologne. The cathedral announced in advance that it would turn off its lights in protest at the gathering in the city. Few people in Cologne would miss the the, symbolism of the fact that almost exactly a year later, the cathedral's lights were blazing as hundreds of local women were molested, raped, and robbed by migrants in the same streets in which the cathedral authorities had objected to the protesters walking, standing, or congregating. This habit of attacking the secondary symptoms of a problem rather than the primary problem has many causes. Not the least of them is that it is infinitely easier to criticize generally white-skinned people, especially if they are working class, than it is to criticize generally darker-skinned people, whatever their background. Not only is it easier, but it elevates the critic. Any criticism of Islamism or mass immigration, even criticism of terrorism and rape attacks, can be seized upon by anyone else as a demonstration of racism, xenophobia, or bigotry. The accusation, however untrue can come from anywhere and can always carry some moral taint. By contrast, anyone who criticizes someone as a racist or a Nazi is somehow elevated to the position of judge and jury as an anti-racist and anti-Nazi. Different standards of evidence also apply. So, for instance, the chairman of the Luton Islamic Center, Abdul Qadir Baksh, is also the head teacher of the local school associates with local politicians, including MPs, and works with local officials on the Luton Council of Faith's interfaith network. He also believes the faith to be in a 1400-year war with those of the Jewish faith, that in an ideal society, homosexuals would be killed, and he has defended the chopping off of hands of thieves and lashing of women under Islamic punishment laws. Yet none of these facts, all easily available, all known or knowable, Make him a pariah or an untouchable. The local police has never raided the houses of his relatives, looking for any excuse at all to arrest him. By contrast, the moment that Tony Robinson emerged, Tommy Robinson emerged. The desire to pin the accusation of racism and being and of being a Nazi to him, whatever he did, came from this chairman. The Islamists against whom the E.D.L. and similar movements protested were inno- were innocent, even when found guilty whilst those who reacted to them were guilty even when they were innocent. European governments tried to avoid finding anyone from Islam guilty, but went out of their way to find movements that reacted to them guilty. Most of the media demonstrated a similar order of priorities, the most striking example of which was the desire to prove anti-Semitism on the part of any reactive movement while ignoring actual anti-Semitism in the primary movement to which the secondary movement was objecting. So, although the entire German media rushed to try to prove Pegida's leaders or members anti-Semitic, it has shown itself to be almost as slow as the German government when it comes to identifying the actual anti-Semitism among the Salafists and others to whom Pegida says it objects. Only after the government had let in the migrant flow of 2015 did members of the government and media in Germany start to concede that anti-Semitism among migrants from the Middle East in particular might be a problem, particularly in Europe. But this is not just a political failing, it is a public one as well. When it comes to anti-fascism in most of Western Europe, there would appear for now to be a supply and demand problem. The demand for fascists vastly outstrips the actual supply. One of the few bedrocks of post-war politics was anti-fascism, a determined to never allow it to emerge again. And yet, in time, this became perhaps the sole remaining certainty. The further fascism receded into history and the fewer visible fascist examples there were on display, the more the self-proclaimed anti-fascists needed fascism to retain any semblance of political virtue or purpose. It proved politically useful to describe as fascist people who really were not, just as it proved politically useful to describe as racist people who may not actually be. In both cases, the terms were allowed to be applied as widely as possible. In both cases, a huge political and social pride was paid by anybody accused of these evils. And yet, unjustly accusing people of these evils carried no social or political price whatsoever. It was a cost-free exercise which could bring only political and personal advantages. Nonetheless, while it may also be noted that no similar anti-communist fervor was ever sustained in Western Europe, or was dismissed where it was suspected as akin to witch-hunting, anti-fascists in Europe were not always onto nothing, a fact that applies yet another layer of complexity onto Europe's social problems. In the United States, a popular protest movement of any kind including one to do with immigration or Islam, is likely to attract some eccentric people or even crazies with kooky signs. But it will rarely consist, early on, let alone firstly, of actual Nazis. When the Dutch MP Geert Wilders split off from the Dutch Liberal Party in 2004, over the party's support of Turkey's entry into the EU, he formed his own party. The Party for Freedom gained 9 out of the 150 seats in the Dutch parliament, at its first election in 2006. Opinion polls in 2016 showed the party to be the most popular one in Holland. Despite a growing number of MPs, Wilders remains to date the sole actual member of his party. When the party was first incorporated, Wilders himself ensured that this was the case. Neither members of the public nor in the end his own party's members, MPs were able to join the party. In the process, Wilders forfeited large amounts of state funding, which increases in Holland with the size of the political party. The single reason why Wilders chose to operate the party in this manner was, he explained privately at the time, that if he were to make it a membership party, the first people to join could be the small number of skinheads that exist in Holland, What? and because of them, the next groups of people would not join. He was not willing to allow a tiny fringe of actual neo-Nazis to destroy the political prospects of an entire country. Oh, he wanted to get the end of the bell curve out of there. This points to a deep problem in modern Europe and poses a severe challenge to any movement of people committed to challenging the issues that are at the forefront of European concerns. The same story is replicated in parliamentary parties and street movements. When Tommy Robinson set up the EDL, he was shortly afterwards told that an actual Nazi based abroad insisted on coming in and taking the movement over. Robinson refused, at some risk to himself, and much of his time in the EDL was spent trying to keep such people out of the movement, not that he was ever given any credit for these moves. Nor was it often noted that a conviction for assault in 2011 was caused by him headbutting a person who claimed to be a neo-Nazi. If the media and politicians claim that a movement is far to the right, it will of course attract what far-right people there are, even if the organizations or the organizers are sincerely trying to rid their movement of such people. Thanks, media. But it is also the case that there are small movements of actual racists and fascists in European countries, all of which raises numerous questions for the continent the short-term answer to those objecting to the consequences of mass immigration has been to ostracize them from any place in the discussion by calling them names. If it was recognized that at least some of the people so designated did not warrant the, this label, then this was clearly thought a price worth paying. But what does a political class and the media do when they discover that the views they have been, that they have tried to make beyond the political pale are in fact the views of the majority of the public thank you for watching please like subscribe and visit my channel for more exciting content